Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's actually called a crisis, and that is the nation's student loan debt. A new report from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute analyzes the debt burden that it varies by race, ethnicity, and family wealth. So if your family doesn't have the ability to save for college, and there's just been decades and centuries of policies that have made sure that Black families just don't have as much saved, don't own their homes, don't have as much wealth as white families, then many Black students do turn to loans to go to college. I'll speak with Jennifer Lee, Senior Policy Analyst for Higher Education at the Institute. Now shifting to Georgia's U.S. Senate runoff elections in January, former President Barack Obama and Vice President Mike Pence will be in Georgia today campaigning for their party Senate candidates. Mr. Obama will participate in a virtual rally this afternoon with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Meanwhile, Vice President Pence will be in Savannah. And Saturday, President Donald Trump is scheduled to hold a rally in South Georgia. Speaking of the runoff, State Farm Arena and Mercedes-Benz Stadium will be used as early voting polling locations from December 14th through the 19th. Then December 21st will serve as a transition day. No early voting will be held on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Mercedes-Benz Stadium will then take over the second half of early voting from December 22nd through the 30th. Now here's Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts earlier in the week talking about the partnership. The Atlanta Hawks, Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United, all joining hands to make voting in Fulton County a wonderful, pleasant, open, fair, transparent experience. Meanwhile, the Georgia Department of Public Health reported more than 4,000 new cases this Wednesday. This is the highest number of new cases reported in Georgia since August. So at the time of this broadcast, we now know 433,000 353 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in Georgia. 35,571 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,599 were considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording all of these numbers way back in March, right now 8,879 folks have lost their lives due to the virus. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at GeorgiaBright.org. 
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We all know, yes, the world is still facing this coronavirus. Now, on Wednesday, the nation saw its single worst daily death toll since the start of the pandemic. And hospitalizations are also at a record high. And since the start of the pandemic, one factor has unfortunately remained constant. Black, Latino, and Native American individuals face a higher rate of not only getting COVID-19, but also suffering more damaging effects, including death. In fact, here in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that virus cases and hospitalizations are more than two times higher, respectively, among those groups I just talked about. Now, here in Atlanta, the CDC Foundation has created a new role that will focus on a little bit of that in addressing some of the systemic issues surrounding health inequities. And I've had this conversation so many times on this program, but we're about to have another one. Dr. Lauren Smith is the foundation's first chief health equity and strategy officer. She joins me, as well as Dr. Judy Monroe, the president and CEO of the CDC Foundation. She joins us again. Welcome both of you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting us. Dr. Smith, I'll start with you because I've been asking everyone this question. What do you make of this extraordinary time that we've been in now for nearly nine months? Ooh, I think you have to take a big breath, you know, a big deep breath to answer that, right? And the, the fact that you are have asked it and will continue to ask it, I think is is telling. What I make of it is that we are we are in a difficult time, no doubt. And what we are experiencing is the cumulative result of choices and patterns and behaviors that have put those, those groups that you mentioned at the top of the program, those groups are at risk, not just because of this virus, but because of situations and, and environments and, and issues that were uh, in place well before this virus. So I think that this virus is, and the pandemic is giving us an opportunity to address these issues, to galvanize people to who are now recognizing that these inequities existed before, and that's why we're seeing them so starkly right now in all the ways that you've outlined. Hmm. So I see this as a, a time for us to, to go deeper in understanding and, and use that energy, uh, even though we're all so fatigued of being in this situation, to use that energy to um, move in a positive direction so that when this is over, and it will be over eventually, when this is over, our communities will be stronger and safer. Dr. Monroe, your reflection? Yeah, I would build on on what Lauren has just said. We We have a moment in time, and I think it is imperative that we all come together and seize this moment in time and seize the energy um, and I've, I'm encouraged by the number of coalitions and collaboratives that are forming. I mean, I've, there, is a, there is an energy coming from the private sector. Uh, we are seeing more uh, folks saying, look, we want to fund health equity. We want to fund, but we want to do this intentional. Uh, where this isn't, let's not give lip service anymore. Let's really go to the root causes and let's, let's make a difference. It's going to take all of us. We cannot solve these issues without the whole of society. Um, and that uh, I, I'm, I'm energized by by what I'm seeing. And Dr. Monroe, I want to stay with you for a moment because I think it's important for our listeners to understand when we talk about the CDC Foundation and the CDC. Obviously, you share the same name, but they're 
two totally separate entities. For our listeners who may not be aware, give them a brief snapshot of the mission and the vision of the CDC Foundation. CDC Foundation is an independent nonprofit. We were actually created by Congress to help support CDC's life-saving work, and we work across the United States and around the world uh, as a nonprofit supporting public health. Have you all had to shift? I mean, obviously with this pandemic, you all have had to shift, that's no doubt, but you still have other areas that you were in other issues that you all were addressing before the pandemic. Yes, we have. So we actually did a, we've divided and conquered at the foundation. We have a whole team working on just the emergency response. And then we have a team that has stayed true to all of our regular work because we didn't want the distraction Quite frankly, when we start looking at chronic diseases, other infectious diseases, uh, they are, we're seeing worse outcomes because of the pandemic, uh, both across the United States and globally, right? So uh, the opioid crisis was something that we were Mm -hmm. front and center on. Um, The the mental health issues that have been brought forward, uh, the the misuse of substances has just gotten worse with the pandemic. So we can't let up on those others. Chronic disease, we're not, we're now seeing with the, uh, COVID, we're seeing the consequences of chronic diseases, long-termers as they're they're calling them, or the long haulers with uh, cardiovascular disease, neurological disease. Um, so I'm I'm quite concerned actually uh, about the the aftermath, the long the long aftermath of the of the pandemic. Dr. Monroe, we've had this conversation before. I know you all don't like to to get into the politics of this, but let's be really clear. Politics has been woven into this pandemic, uh, which has been unfortunate. I mean, I think we all can agree on that because at the end of the day, what you want to do is save lives. But I would like for both of you to comment on how politics has been challenging through your lens in trying to address this pandemic. So I think the, the biggest issue here is that when it comes to a pandemic, you have to have clear communication from the experts that is science-based, right? And we've not had that. We've not had the opportunity through this pandemic to have the, the consistent message. Because if we want to stop this virus, we need, again, all of society taking the actions all at the same time together. Um, I was a state health officer uh, during H1N1, and I was the spokesperson, uh, the consistent spokesperson. Uh, you saw Rich Besser as the acting CDC director during H1N1. He was the face uh, to that, or Dr. Ann Shookett. So that's what we need. I mean, we need to, to have our public health uh, experts back front and center in front of the camera talking to the American people. Dr. Smith, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on that as well. Yeah, I, I think I would just add a, a couple things to what Judy said. One is that you want it to, we have to communicate in a science and fact-based way. And we have to also communicate in a way that understands and is empathetic to what people are experiencing and doesn't seek to minimize the, the fatigue or the concerns that people are, are feeling about their families, their neighborhoods, their their livelihoods, you know, that their the, the work, you know, are they going to be able to go to work? Are they going to be able to make ends meet to provide for their families? We have to be able to communicate and understand that. But that doesn't mean that we should, um, I don't know, sort of uh, paint too rosy a picture and, mm-hmm. and not be honest. I think people really, uh, it really means a lot to people when their public health and uh, elected officials you know, present that uh, honest experience 
fact-based but empathetic and understanding um, approach. For years, we used to always talk about health disparities. I think there is a shift to move away from that phrasing to more of health equity in terms of a more positive path forward. But what this pandemic has exposed, which for some people was eye opening, but I think for folks like you, it probably wasn't what this pandemic has exposed, of course, are the inequities and health disparities among folks in this nation. So that's not new. We can move past that. The question is, how now do we address this with this COVID-19 pandemic? Dr. Smith, I'll let you weigh in on this first. Well, I think we were starting to get at that, Rose, which is what are the what are the root causes of the inequities that we're seeing play out right right now? The the pandemic didn't create them, but it is intensifying or uh, accentuating them. And so, what I hope comes out of this is a a willingness to go deep and to be honest with ourselves, to be able to confront those underlying issues that meant that. The communities you talked about are Black, Latinx, uh, Native American communities having higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, and other things that put them at risk before the pandemic even came. So they were you know, uh, vulnerable to the effects that we talked about. What I hope is that not only are we going to be thinking about response and recovery, which is obviously really important, but how do you build up our communities so that they are more resilient and uh, more vital and healthier before the next mm-hmm. before the next pandemic comes. So when we think about rebuilding or reconstructing, that we're we're thinking about uh, really putting things in place for our communities so that they are stronger going forward. And it's not just going back to what we're what we had before. You may hear people talking about, well, I want to get back to you know back to normal. Well, back to normal for many people wasn't very good. Uh, and that's why we're seeing this play out the way we are. So we have to be better than what was you know, conceived of as being normal before. So, Dr. Monroe, it seems like then this was the best time. I won't say perfect, but it was the it was a good time to start looking at what the CDC Foundation could do or how it, it could change an approach in addressing uh, health equity. The idea of a chief health equity and strategy officer How'd that come about? Yeah, so as we've talked about, you know, COVID really put such a bright light on the uh, health equity issues. Um, and what I was seeing, uh, the foundation really has transformed during this time. We've, we've hired over a thousand staff. Uh, we've, we've exploded. We've got uh, teams in every state across the nation, in uh, tribal organizations, territories, and, and big cities. And we've, we've just been so involved in a number of coalitions, as I mentioned, uh, what, and they're not just public health, I mean, with private sector, academia, and so forth. So we have an opportunity. I realize we sit in such an interesting place in the public health ecosystem uh, as the CDC foundation that having a chief health equity and strategy officer, we have an opportunity to, to be involved with all of the above. I mean, we're, we're seeing companies now that are starting to bring in health equity officers. We're seeing hospital systems that are saying, we're gonna have a C-suite health equity officer and we're, we're gonna do this again with, uh, we're gonna be intentional about this. So what I wanna do is, is have Dr. Dr. Smith help keep them all honest, uh, you know, cause we do sit in a position that we uh, can have a voice uh, among this whole network of chief health equity officers across the nation. Let's really mobilize and do this right. 
Well, Dr. Smith, when Dr. Monroe says she needs someone like you to keep everybody honest, I'm sure a listener <laughs> says, well, what does that mean? I think that, that it means, you know, a lot of things. One is to ensure that we're having these conversations and we continue to have them in across all different settings, right? So this this is not just about public health or even health care um, delivery, because we have seen that if we have inequities the way that we have experienced them, it's going to affect all aspects of our life, right? People take for granted that they can go to the grocery store, that the grocery store is going to be stocked, that it's going to be open, that they'll be able to get what they need. If we have health inequities, the people who do all that work are not going to be able to do it or not going to be you know, healthy and won't be able to get to work. So, you know, I think we've we come to realize that our our survival is intertwined and interrelated and mm-hmm. we really do rely on each other in a lot of ways that perhaps we didn't recognize or realize before. So I think my role is to connect the dots and to help people understand that kind of um, intertwining so that people can see what their role is and see how they can contribute. When you say people, are you talking about folks within the CDC Foundation? Are you also talking about your partners that you are working with throughout the nation and obviously even throughout the world? Yes, Rose, all of those, especially um, external partners. So uh, people who may not, so groups, business, you know, uh, Judy was just talking about the private sector, you know, who now are increasingly understanding, hey, we need a really healthy workforce to be able to, you know, do our do our work and you know, create our, uh, you know, strong economy. So there's, those are the kinds of, I, I would say, folks who, wouldn't necessarily be thinking of themselves as public health advocates before, but now are really beginning to understand that equity is essential for their sector to function. And that's where I feel like my role is as a bridging role or kind of an interpreter role, if you will, across these different sectors. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Smith. She's the new Chief Health Equity and Strategy Officer at the CDC Foundation. I'm also joined by Dr. Judy Monroe, President and CEO of the CDC Foundation. So, Dr. Smith, I'm curious, in your list of duties that Dr. Monroe has given you, how do you assess then, or how do you prioritize and come up with your strategy, because that's in your title? What's that process like? Well, it's, you know, a lot of uh, moving fast and having to respond quickly, right? We don't have the luxury of uh, a lot of slow contemplation. I'll put it that I'll tell you that, Rose. I mean, we're definitely uh, needing to be responsive and and, and I should be fair you just got into the role in October so I need right to exactly about that. but there's been no no rest no no rest and no pause um, which I think is appropriate given the time that we're in and for all the things that we're talking about but I really feel like I have the good fortune of being able to bring so many experiences to this, you know, having worked as a public health official myself in uh, the state of Massachusetts, uh, having been a clinician, so I'm a pediatrician rose by training and I took care of hospitalized kids. And you learn a lot about communities working with families um, whose children are, you know, seriously ill and in the hospital. I've, you know, worked in government, both at the state and Mm -hmm. Uh, federal level. So I'm bringing all of that to bear. And I think so much of this is around relationships and connections and being able to be in conversation with folks to do that, connecting the dots 
because I really feel like once you can do that, people really do understand once they've been able to sort of see those connections played out for them. So can you tell me about something that you are working on now or something that you're trying to implement now? Well, I think, you know, the very first thing that we needed to do was have clarity around, you know, how we were thinking about equity within the foundation and in our work. Um, There are lots of ways of talking about it and thinking about it. But for us, I think having a clear vision of a vibrant, healthy and resilient, you know, communities where all residents can live their healthiest lives and contribute to the well-being of their families and communities. That's our vision and Mm -hmm. being able to speak that and, and galvanize around that, I think is important being able to be clear about when we say health equity, we mean that that means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be healthy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop there. Health equity doesn't stop there because it means that you have to actively remove the obstacles to health. So you don't just stop at saying, okay, people have a, a fair and just opportunity. That's important and necessary. But in order to achieve that, you have to actively remove those obstacles. And that, and and helping people understand that last piece, what does that look like? And that's why we need the partnerships that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, because you can't get to the removing those kinds of obstacles, you know, poverty and and poor housing, um, issues with environment and neighborhood safety, those kinds of things, you need partners. We always say on this program, there are tentacles tied to our quality of life and obviously health care, health is one of them. And you factor in education, workforce development, uh, all of those are tied to our quality of life. Dr. Monroe, then how do you set the metrics to gauge the success or the effectiveness or something's not working in what Dr. Smith just talked about? Yeah, so Rose, that's a really terrific question. And we actually have put together a framework uh, for exactly how we're going to measure uh, the success of the, the work that's being led by by Dr. Smith, uh, working with a really seasoned evaluator that uh, just retired from CDC, by the way. And, and this is all the way from, you know, are we are we utilizing real-time data that's coming from communities? Are we, why, are we actually seeing the metrics move on that, all the things we just talked about? It is housing, it is education. It, it's those social determinants of health as we talk about. Um, and then getting to those root causes as we talked about. And, you know, to get to the root causes, I'll share with you as well, we are working nationally with community-based organizations at the mm-hmm. foundation. This is another, COVID has really been an accelerator. Um, and again, shame on us if we don't seize this moment in time and take bold action uh, about, about all these issues that we're talking about. So we're working at the grassroots with community-based organizations. We need to be listening to the communities more intently, but then that needs to be translated into policy and it's gotta move up you know, to the grass tops but we are privileged at the CDC Foundation to work with leaders uh, at all levels uh, in lots of different systems across across the nation. So we we're approaching this very systematically. Um, and you know, the gold standard is when you see policy change. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the real measure of success. But there are a lot of things on that pyramid of success uh, leading up to that. And uh, you want to celebrate the small wins as well. I was on a call yesterday with we'd supported some. Uh, of at-risk communities in Richmond, uh, Virginia, earlier in the COVID response, and they had their metrics of success over a three-month period. And you know what? One of the measures was keeping people from becoming homeless because mm-hmm. they had an acceleration of people becoming homeless because they were 
uh, you know, working in the gig economy and they, and some of them undocumented and they didn't want to let people know they were positive for COVID. So we, we need to take these lessons from COVID and translate those post pandemic in, into actions that every community can take across the nation and we can do as a nation as a whole. Dr. Smith, care to add anything? No, I, I think that that's yeah, 100% on point. As we wrap up, and again, it's another question that I've asked pretty much with every guest that we've talked about, and how optimistic are you all as health professionals now in terms of the United States? And we've been talking about mitigating the spread of the virus. Now we're in a phase where we're talking about the vaccine and and when it can be distributed and who should get it first. Dr. Smith, I'll start with you. Uh, what are your reflections going into 2021? And I, That's an excellent question. And I know a lot of people are thinking about that and have that top of mind, especially as we're heading into the holidays and you know, people are naturally reflecting on you know, what's, what's life going to be like next year. I think there's a number of things that make me hopeful. One is that we have several vaccines that are being shown to be quite uh, effective and safe. So I think that the opportunity to protect uh, and and provide peace of mind to uh, so many uh, populations will be really important. I think, but we have some challenges in getting that into operation so that you know we have enough vaccine that we have um, people understand that there's a priority you know in terms of who uh, needs to get the vaccine first and it's going to take us a little while to get the vaccine out to everyone. Uh, we also have some challenges around folks feeling confident confident and comfortable in taking the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, going to be important and we need to understand why people might um, be hesitant and be able to address that. But I think having a vaccine that will be safe and effective is going to be a game changer. I think that uh, having people understand how and why they have to continue those important mitigation measures, even though they might be, you know, tiring of wearing a mask, doing social distancing, you know, doing the frequent hand washing, all those things that we, those just have to become part of how we, you know, how we do our business, uh, you know, for the next several months. But I think that with those, all of those things in place, I think we're going to be able to, to move past this. Dr. Monroe, I'll give you the last word. I'm an optimistic realist. Uh, so I am optimistic about 2021, but I'm realistic about how hard it will be. We do have an uphill battle. Uh, it's going to be a, a dark winter. We're in the darkest period of time with the pandemic, and it's going to take all hands on deck to overcome the, the challenges of getting this vaccine out. But I'm very optimistic, actually, about our young generation. I think this is a moment in time. They will, this will be a lifetime memory. Uh, for for our young adults, and I've seen many of them step up in leadership roles. I'm very optimistic about about what this uh, will we'll see in the future from those leaders. Dr. Judy Monroe, president and CEO of the CDC Foundation. I was also joined by Dr. Lauren Smith, the new chief health equity and strategy officer at the CDC Foundation. Dr. Smith, congratulations on your new post. Dr. Monroe, it's always good to have you on the program in this conversation. Thank you for what you're all doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. It was great to meet you and to talk to your listeners.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. There have been many proposed solutions regarding easing the burden of student loan debt. From total forgiveness to forgiving up to $50,000 of student debt for borrowers with an earned income less than $250,000. Now, those are just two ideas. However, understand this. It is estimated 45 million borrowers collectively owe just about $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Raise your hand if this is you because you're not alone. In fact, here in the United States, student loan debt is second only to mortgage debt for consumers, with making it higher than credit cards and auto loans. Now, if he keeps his promise and can get support from Congress, President-elect Joe Biden has a few ideas about student loan debt. Here's Biden last month answering a question about his student loan debt plans. It does figure in my plan. I've laid out in detail, for example, the... uh, uh, the legislation passed by the Democratic House calls for immediate $10,000 forgiveness of student loans. It's holding people up. They're in real trouble. They're having to make choices between paying their student loan and paying the rent, those kinds of decisions. It should be done immediately. In addition to that, if you know, I think that everything from community college straight through to doubling Pell Grants to making sure that we have access, free education for anyone making under $125,000 for four years of college, And there is a program that exists now under the law that forgives student loans for being able to engage in in public service. I'm going to institute that fundamental change in that so it's able to be available to everyone that, in fact, is engaged. It's not being very well managed right now. So I'm going to do all of those things. Now, while it remains to be seen what exactly a Biden administration will be able to do regarding student loan debt, Here in Georgia, a new report breaks down this debt burden. From the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, the report titled How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality reveals debt burden varies widely by race, ethnicity, and a number of other metrics. Well, joining me now to talk more about the report is Jennifer Lee, Senior Policy Analyst with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Jennifer, glad to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Rose. Let's begin with this because odds are you are not surprised by the following. According to educationdata.org, since 2003, the national total student loan debt balance, and this blew my mind, Jennifer, has grown by 602.5%. I imagine that is not lost on you. Yeah, we've seen a big increase in student debt across the country and in Georgia. And that increase has two main causes, one of which is not worrying and one of which is extremely troubling. <laughs> okay. um, one, one, the not worrying part of that is that more students are going to college. Mm-hmm. So that is a cont- contribution. Um, you know, we, we want more students to go to school. Um, we don't want them to borrow excessively in order to do so, but that does contribute. Um, but the other factor is, as you've seen, that college has gotten very expensive for a lot of students forcing them to borrow. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the um, responsibility for paying for college has shifted to students in a way that hasn't been the case in the past. And we're going to dig into that a lot deeper. And by your own reporting, you all were able to determine 57 percent of Georgia college graduates carry debt. And of those who do, the average debt burden is twenty eight thousand eight hundred twenty four 
And Jennifer, from what we discovered, that's only about 5000 less than the national average, which is just over $32,000. You mentioned the reasons for that. But in a state like Georgia, does this mean it's just going to continue? We're going to see that increase. Could we get to a point where the average debt will surpass or catch up even closer to that national average of $32,000? Well, I think if we don't do anything to make changes that we're going to see that debt continue to increase. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons um, is that, as I mentioned, we've seen that cost shift to the students in a way that it hasn't before. And what I mean is that um, the state and other sources used to pick up a lot bigger portion of the cost. So Mm -hmm. for example, if it cost $100 to run a college, let's say, Um, It used to be that the state would pay for about $75 of that and charge $25 for tuition. Mm. Now now colleges are charging $50 in tuition. That's doubled. And Mm. federal Pell Grants haven't caught up. Wages haven't caught up for students who need to work and pay for living costs. So students are just expected to pay a lot more. So let's begin here as we dig into this by identifying based on race and sex, who's borrowing the most here in Georgia? I think I know the answer to this, but... Y'all are the experts here. So in Georgia, as in the rest of the country, Black students are the most burdened by um, student debt. Um, They're significantly more likely to have to turn to loans to pay for higher education, and they're also borrowing larger amounts when when they turn to loans. You all cite that women are the majority of college students in Georgia, making up, I think you all came up with 59% of the total enrollment in public colleges and 63% of non profit private colleges and 72% of for-profit colleges, but despite the fact that they are more likely to graduate, women can expect to enter an economy where they are paid less on average. And now we get into another external issue when it comes to, okay, why are folks challenged with paying back their student loan debt? Here is an example of that. Yeah, that's a great example of how even if everyone had the same amount of student debt, they would experience that debt burden differently. So we know that women, um, even if they borrow similar amounts to men, when they graduate, there is significant wage gaps by gender. In addition, when you layer race and ethnicity on top of that, that are even larger, which means the same loan payment can represent a significantly heavier burden for women than for men, um, even in the same fields. And how many conversations have we had about that? If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Jennifer Lee. She's a senior policy analyst with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And we're talking about a new report from the Institute, How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality. Let's get into something that you mentioned very early on, which was while we know it's clear student loan debt has been increasing over time, Jennifer, Your report is very clear. State and federal resources and funding have been declining. That's been a big part of this. So you're saying the funding has been decreasing in terms of resources for students, and that's why they're carrying and shouldering a heavy burden to pay for their own college here. That's correct. I mean, when we look at the way that our state is growing and the way that more and more students now want and need to go to college, it's clear that our state budget has not been able to keep up. Um, in terms of funding per student to keep that same high quality of education uh, for students that are going to college. So when we look at per student funding, um, you know, of course, there were big cuts in this most most recent budget. Mm -hmm. But when we look in the very long term, there has been a very long term 
disinvestment in higher education as our budget just structurally has not been able to keep up with college demand. What were you all able to reveal in terms of students who may have taken out these loans and then maybe didn't finish? What were the trends there and among which demographic? So that is one of the most troubling parts of of looking at the student loan data is that, um, you know, having student loan debt and a degree is can be challenging, but having debt and no degree can be devastating for Mm. students. Um, Students who have debt but um, drop out and are not able to finish have some of the worst outcomes when we're looking at their likelihood to default on the loan, which can itself have quite um, severe consequences um, financially. And so, um, and often um, many of the students who drop out and have that debt actually have very small amounts of debt. So because Mm -hmm. perhaps they were only able to go to college for one or two years, they actually didn't borrow that much, but that's still that small amount of debt can really hurt their financial health because they don't have the degree that can help them in the job market. Mm -hmm. Your report also lists by institution some specific borrowing trends. For example, larger loans taken out at schools with more students from low-income families. And what stood out for me was at the top of this list, what we call our historically black colleges and universities, Savannah State, Fort Valley State, Albany State, and then Georgia Tech was in there, and Clayton State and Columbus State. Was that that surprising to you at all as an analyst when you saw that? I would say it wasn't surprising saying what we know about the demographics of borrowers, but it's still very striking when you Mm -hmm. see that list of students where the vast majority of students borrow and have the highest debt burdens that it is the HBCUs. Because what it means to me is that Black students in particular are risking more Mm -hmm. to achieve economic mobility. And we've seen again that these institutions in particular um, in other studies have been extremely important for economic mobility in the state of Georgia, more than you know our um, predominantly white institutions mm-hmm. or perhaps our flagship prestigious universities. The HBCUs have been so important mm-hmm. for economic mobility in the state, but more and more black students and other students who attend those institutions are risking more. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer, we have yet to mention how this pandemic will affect millions of borrowers and their ability to make student loan payments moving forward. Factor that in as well. And I know you all try to stay out of the politics of some of these issues, but I played that clip of President-elect Biden and some of his plans in his administration. Is that where the solution needs to begin from the federal level? I think a big thing, a big help that the federal government can provide, you know, I like to think of it in two different ways. What are we going to do for existing borrowers? And what are we going to do to prevent the student debt from happening for future students? For preventing student debt in the future, one of the things that the federal government can do is provide more funding um, directly to colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. and also in federal Pell Grant programs. you know, it's 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 better to never have taken a loan out at all and sure. than to try to come up with a program or some type of relief for students who have borrowed. That's primarily what the federal government can do going forward. And here at the state level, particularly as it relates to our public colleges, universities, I imagine we're talking about the state legislature being key here. 
The state legislature is key for sure because they control the purse, purse strings to the colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And they also control the financial aid that is given out in Georgia. You mentioned the Hope Scholarship before. Um, Georgia is one of only two states who does not provide need-based financial mm -hmm. aid to their students in Georgia. So that um, is a key policy lever, lever that Georgia could use. Um, and Georgia is also actually the only state that has its own um, state loan program um, that is funded in the way that it is. And so it, it's it's unique in, in a couple of different ways, both with HOPE and how we manage our own state loan program. Well, Jennifer, we just mentioned that R word again, the recession, but depending on whom you ask, some say we are already in a recession because of the pandemic or we're heading into one. What is your hope that policymakers make sure they're going to address this issue when we talk about student loan debt moving forward? I would hope that policymakers really see colleges and universities as a place that can help people, individuals, families, and the state actually recover from the recession. Um, what we've seen in the past and what we're seeing now at, in um, the university system of Georgia is that when the economy goes down, more students enroll <laughs> because um, they are investing in themselves and their skills for the long term. And perhaps mm -hmm. they've lost jobs and know that they need to shore up their skills. So I hope that policymakers really see our higher education system as the workforce development system it is and a place that needs to be invested in to help people find work um, and to um, get jobs uh, in a very difficult economic environment. As we wrap up, and we know that obviously maybe policymakers and state lawmakers should read this report, who else should take note of this report? Well, I think that um, in, in addition to policymakers, um, folks in the business community could really benefit from thinking about uh, student debt issues. As we said, there are a lot there are a lot of places that businesses can plug in from offering you know paid internship opportunities and work-based learning opportunities to students, contributing to their own scholarship funds, but also to help people be able to pay back their loans and not contribute to the disparities that we see, just making sure that they're having diverse hiring pools, mm -hmm. fair hiring practices. Um, all of that can help. You know, one of the reasons, again, that we've seen that student debt burden affects women and racial and ethnic minorities differently is because of discrimination in the workplace. So mm -hmm. that, is, again, is something that businesses can look at when they're thinking about student debt. It's all tied together. Jennifer Lee is with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and the report is How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality. We will have a link to Jennifer's report on our website. Jennifer, compelling information. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.